coming out of 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, and the scripture reads as follows. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the world, word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of the first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to scriptures, that he, has, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then into 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, through some, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to uh, James, then to all of the apostles, and verse 80 speaks that, and last of all, he appeared to me, also as the one abnormally born, for I am the least of the apostles, and did not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I am because I persecuted the church of God. Verse 10 speaks that by the grace of God who I what I am, and his grace to whom I was not without effect, know I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether that is I Sorry. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what we believe. May God bless the hearers, readers, and doers of his holy Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in it we see who you are. That you reveal yourself to us, and thus we see who we are in you. So I pray in these moments as we reflect on the truths of this scripture, the good news it preaches to us. You would form us according to it. Pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A few years ago, I went to a mosque for Islamic worship service. Um, I went as an observer and called ahead so they knew I was coming. I stood in the back and watched. And it was fascinating. I remember while I was there, I was thinking there's a lot of what's happening here that feels very dissimilar, very different than my experience of Christian worship service. But I also remember thinking there's a lot in this worship service that feels very similar um, to Christian worship service. And one of those things was the sermon. So the imam stood up, and that's what uh, people in the Muslim faith call their pastors. He stood up, he read a passage from the Quran, and he started preaching. And I'll never forget his sermon. He said that life was like a big test. Life was a big test. And God gives us instructions to help us study and prepare. And we have opportunities in life that are like questions on the exam, opportunities to put his wisdom into practice. And our hope is that we pass the test. One day we'll stand before God and he'll grade our test, our big life, that's an exam. And if we did more good things than bad things, then we pass the test, he'll reward us with heaven. So the message is to study hard and stay focused. And I was shocked when I heard that. Not because I didn't expect, not because I didn't expect to hear something like that. I had uh, studied Islam enough to know that this idea that God rewards those who do good works was kind of a baseline belief. I was shocked because I had heard this exact illustration from pastors, from Christian pastors, from Sunday school teachers, from mentors. I had heard that life was a test, and that God gives us the Bible. After all, the acronym is what? The Bible. Basic instructions before leaving earth. You ever heard that? 
that life is a test and God gives us instructions through the Bible. And if we can put his good advice into practice, then one day we'll stand before him and he'll reward us with his love. If we get enough, if we put enough of that into practice. But guys, if that is what the gospel of Jesus is, then we're just going to shut this down and go home. Because I, myself at least, am too far gone. If all God has for me is good advice, then I'm already too far gone. I cannot climb out of the hole that my selfish and my uh, sinful heart has dug. Even with the best advice in the world. I cannot earn his love. I will not pass this test. I cannot balance the scales. Because even when I do good things, they're marred with my mixed motives. I don't even live up to who I want to be, much less the perfect standard of who you know, God has created humanity to be. But I have some good news this morning. I have some very good news. It's the good news that the Apostle Paul is writing about here in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the good news that the whole Bible is about. That what God has for us is not good advice about how to be good people. It's good news of a victory accomplished for us, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about that a little bit more. The, the word gospel, gospel is one of those words that we say a lot but never really define, one of those Christianese words, right? So what does gospel mean? Gospel literally means good news. It means good news. It's an announcement of something that has happened that changes everything. Now it doesn't mean like, Good news, I just saved 15% by changing my car insurance to Geico. Good news. It's not small things. It's good news of a huge scale. In fact, when the Apostle Paul writes about the gospel of Jesus here, when Jesus arrived on the scene and was talking about the gospel of the kingdom, they weren't making up a new word. They were actually reaching for a word that everybody who heard them would have known very well. The reason why... Uh, well, a little bit of a Roman history lesson. About a generation before Jesus, what became the Roman Empire at the time was the Roman Republic was in chaos. Region was fighting against region, city against city. There was no stability. You know, if you were a farmer, you were out there farming one day, and then all of a sudden this, uh, you know, band of brigands comes over, burns your crop, and your life's over. Everything was in chaos until a man named Octavian... He was able to angle and take power, and he established the Roman Empire. He was the first Caesar, Caesar Augustus, that's what they called him. And because he brought this peace and stability, and he established the empire, and was able to enforce this peace through power, they started celebrating his birthday. And part of the celebration, during that big, you know, it was kind of like a, Fourth of July type deal, during the big celebration, they would announce the gospel of Caesar, the foundation of this peace and stability that the people that now lived in the Roman Empire had never known. It was the gospel of Caesar, the good news of this victory that had brought peace. So, when Jesus arrives and he's speaking of the gospel of the kingdom, when the Apostle Paul is speaking about the gospel of Jesus and the other New Testament writers, they're reaching for this word that everybody would have heard and understood. 
This isn't just generic good news. It's good news of a victory that brings peace. Now, of course, the gospel of Caesar, it was a false gospel. It couldn't bring full and complete peace. And that's part of the point. That's part of the reason they reached for that word. To expose that this so-called gospel of Caesar was no gospel at all. But again, they reached for this word because it means the announcement of something that has happened that changes everything. A victory accomplished by someone else. For you that brings peace. So that's the background of the word gospel. It means good news. It means good news. But what makes the good news of Jesus what it is? What makes that distinct? And it's this. Well, we've got a couple of sections, and this is the first one. The gospel has a history. Here's what I mean. Jesus didn't just have some timeless truths and wisdom for us to follow. He taught, of course. And part of following after him is taking his teachings seriously and putting them into practice, obeying his voice. And that's a good thing. But he wasn't just a religious guru with some good ideas. And the story of Jesus isn't just an inspiring story. Like, you know, we watch a Marvel movie and we're inspired at the heroism of Black Panther and we want to be better people. And, but that's a false story that someone made up. That's not what the story of Jesus is. That's not what the gospel is. No, the gospel has a history. It concerns Jesus Christ, a true man who died, who was buried, who was raised from the dead right here in our history. The gospel happened right here in our world, in the places of our struggles. Where Jesus lived and died and was buried and raised is where we live and die and are buried. In Jesus, the eternal Son of God put on flesh and became a human. And in His person, God and humanity are joined together forever. In His person, God and humanity joined together forever, never to be separated. And that means that all that Jesus accomplished becomes definitive for us. In this one person, the entire struggle for reconciliation between God and humanity takes place. The entire struggle for human meaning takes place. And that's why we make such a big deal about who Jesus is. That's why it's the center of who we are. And that's why we call this good news. Because we believe that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God has brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope into our world. God has done something definitive. A victory accomplished for us. And it's good news. It's good news because it tells us of the God who comes to free us from all that holds us bound. To remove every obstacle that stands in the way from us calling Him Father and knowing ourselves as dearly loved children. It's the good news that tells us of the resurrected Jesus who's overcome the power of death and sin so that we might not fear that there is some future condemnation because of what we've done wrong. That we might not fear that our lives will end in futility. Our passage today was written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in a city called Corinth. It's like southern Greece. Still there, actually. Um, and there in Corinth, it was a church he planted. He'd lived there a year and a half. He had loved these people, and they had done life together, and he moved on to the next 
church planting work, and soon after he discovered that an idea had begun to spread in this church like a cancer. It was an idea that people are valuable because of how much stuff they have or how impressive they are, how impressive uh, their gifts might be. And so what was happening in Corinth is uh, things like this. The rich were beginning to separate off and have their own Lord's Supper. The rich would have their own Lord's Supper that the poor weren't allowed to come to. In fact, they'd intentionally have it at times when poor folks would be at work. Obviously, this is a problem, right? This is chaos. That's just one example. There were tons of chaotic things happening, but it was all rooted in this idea that people are truly valuable based on what they have or how impressive their gifts might be. And because of this, because of this chaos, people had started to think about Jesus and what he had accomplished in a different way. They acted as if Jesus had come to make them wealthy and smart. Not to rescue them so much as to give them good advice on how to get over the last hurdle to be wealthy or wise in the measurement of the world they lived in. So that's why the Apostle Paul reminds them here. Notice as he begins in, in this passage, he says, I want to remind you. He's calling them back to the thing that formed them in the first place. He reminds them here that Jesus is not a religious guru with an inspiring idea. We have a lot of those in our time. If you don't believe me, go home and flip on the television and start flipping around. The biggest preacher in America today is a man named Joel Osteen. And he releases books about having your best life now. He's always smiling. He seems like a nice guy. Nice enough. But that is the main religious hero in the United States, more or less. It's the guy they call to go on late. Well, Larry King's not on TV anymore. I'm a little old. It's the guy they call to go on TV. It's the guy with the biggest church and the biggest broadcasting uh, network. But it's that same idea. So Paul reminds them here that Jesus isn't just a guru with an inspiring idea. That's not a gospel. He reminds him that the gospel has a history. It's the message of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, of a victory accomplished, a victory that changes everything. It's good news that cannot be moved on from or left behind. But Paul doesn't just remind them that the gospel has a history. He's talking about events in history. He reminds him that it has a that the gospel has a history that expands. That brings us to our second section. The gospel has a community. As Paul writes here, he's telling about the events of Jesus' life. And then, notice, he begins to list a series of people that the victorious Jesus had appeared to. Derek read for us just a second ago. Cephas, speaks of James, the apostles, 500 people that saw In other words, the gospel that has a history doesn't just remain a past thing that happened. It's not just something for a history book to be learned in a history class. The victory that Jesus has won becomes like fertile soil that nourishes the garden. It spills out. The victorious Jesus becomes the victorious Jesus of Cephas. 
The victorious Jesus of the twelve, of five hundred, of James, of all the apostles, and of, of Paul. And by extension, the victorious Jesus becomes the victorious Jesus of us, of me. The gospel doesn't just have a history, it becomes our history, and it creates a community of people that are defined by and formed by that gospel. That's why in this church, we speak about the gospel all the time, and we will never not. We will always be a gospel-centered church, because it is why we exist. It is the best news to move on to anything else is to detract from the glory of what Jesus has accomplished. It's why we make such a big deal about it. It's our message. It's the foundation of our common life. It's the bedrock of our confidence. It's our strength. It's our power. It's a love that we did not win and cannot lose, but can only revel in like an extravagant gift. Gospel. And the church is meant to be a community that could not exist otherwise in this world apart from the gospel. The church is meant to be a place where people are not judged on how they look or how they smell, where people are not condemned because they've struggled with drugs or alcohol or whatever. A place where people are not primarily identified by who they're attracted to, where those with disabilities are not tossed away and forgotten. The church is a place where the talented and wise can be humble and find a love in Jesus that is theirs apart from them performing to get it. A place where people who are forgotten everywhere else and overlooked everywhere else are honored and celebrated. A people of forgiveness, transformation, and hope. So the gospel has a history, and that gospel expands to have a community. And that community, us, we're given a mission. And that brings me to my next section, the gospel has a mission. Imagine a man is drowning. Imagine he's at the beach, he's drowning. He's caught in a riptide, he's exhausted, he can't swim well. He's beginning to sink. Between waves, he gasps. And calls out for help. He cries. Well, a lifeguard sees him. Rushes into the water. Rather, when he gets close enough to the man, rather than reaching out to save him, the lifeguard begins to tell the man about basic principles on how to swim. Like he gets to the drowning man, who is drowning, and he tells him, well, you know, if you really want to swim, you need this motion, make sure you kick your legs really well. He starts telling him basic principles and how to swim. The lifeguard then tells him about signs of riptides and how to make sure don't go in the water when it's getting really bad. You know, make sure you check it out before you, you go in. And he starts to tell him, well, you really shouldn't have been swimming alone in the first place. He points to the shore. He's, he says, drowning man, do you see the shore? If you don't want to drown, just go back that way. And then the lifeguard turns around, pats himself on the back, because he gave that drowning man some really good advice. And the man drowns. Why? Because that man did not need good advice. He needed to be rescued. 
That's a silly illustration, but I ask, how many churches have been the lifeguard just telling the drowning man what to do? I'm sad to say I think that's probably the majority of experience for people that live in the Bible Belt, in places like where we live. There are people struggling with things they can't even name, with things that have happened to them, with loneliness, and churches swim out like lifeguards and give basic principles on life, or tell them you shouldn't have been here in the first place, pat themselves on the back for standing up for righteousness or whatever they say, while people are drowning. The gospel has a history, it creates a community, and the gospel calls us to live the rest of our lives through the lens of the gospel. The gospel has a mission for us. The Apostle Paul talks about it here in verse 9. He speaks of himself, notice, as least of all the apostles. That he now lives a life as an announcer of this love of God that he doesn't deserve. That he's fundamentally, in a sense, disqualified. And if you know anything about the history of the Apostle Paul, you know he was one of the primary opponents of the early church. In modern definitions, we would have called the Apostle Paul a religious terrorist. He was deputized by the authorities to go chase down and literally go to house to house to drag Christians out of their homes to imprison them. In Acts chapter 7, he oversaw the murder of the first Christian martyr, Stephen, who was stoned to death. By an irate crowd. Paul's pointing out that if you step back and thought about it, he is fundamentally disqualified to be someone standing uh, in a place of authority speaking about the grace of Jesus. But in Jesus, Paul had found a foundation for who he is that was not built on his failures or successes. Not in the failures and successes of his past or his present. He's found the grace of God. And he knows that the gospel of Jesus guts our ideas of what we think matters. It means that we have a foundation of worthiness that will not give way. We have a never-ending fountain of grace to nourish us that will not run dry. And because of that, Paul, as he speaks, can work hard. He says because the grace of God at work within him, he has worked hard to see people thrive in their faith. He has worked hard to see that people know who Jesus is and what he accomplished. But as he has worked hard, he has worked in such a way that he has not built his worth on his work. Not only does he not have to build his worth on the failures of his past as a religious terrorist, he doesn't have to build his worth on the so-called successes of his current life. He's found a foundation for who he is that's not built on his successes or his failures. He doesn't have to try and establish himself by his own works. And because of God's grace, he can turn to the world around him and announce the rescue, the gospel of Jesus without fear.
My hope for our church and what I think Jesus is calling us into, into the future, is to be, on a, be a place on mission with the gospel. But the truth is, unless we're purposeful about it, this is true for us individually and together as a church. Unless we are purposeful about the gospel being the center of who we are, it will get lost in the mix. It will. And that would be the biggest tragedy of all. There would be such a waste of resources and money and time and lives if we started a church plant and suddenly became about something other than the gospel of Jesus. The church is meant to be a place where the radical welcome of Jesus is proclaimed, heard, and responded to. But as we spoke about already, so many churches become places where the people who desperately need to hear this welcome of Jesus would never go. It is the last place that they would go to find love. It is the last place they would go when they are actually in need. But it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't. And that's my prayer and my hope, not just for us this fall as we're looking about the details of the gospel, but on into the future, however long God blesses this church, this individual church to exist. That the gospel would be the very center of who we are, that it would be our lifeblood. The gospel. The good news, not good advice, the good news that through Jesus, God has brought forgiveness, transformation, and hope for done. That's good news. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for this incredible good news. I thank you for your love for us. The debts that you have gone to rescue us from what we've done and what others have done to us. And I thank you for the freedom that is ours in Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that you sink this gospel deep in our hearts. That we would be gospel-centered people and a gospel-centered community as a church. And that springing from that gospel will be everything else. Seal it to our hearts, Lord, as we reflect on it. May we be quick to turn to the truth of the gospel. Because that is our hope. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.